Hello and welcome to the Bureau 42 Greatest Science Fiction Film Tournament Podcast. I am your host, Alex Case, flying solo once again. And this time I am taking a look at, well, three works which we are trying to be topical about. We missed the opportunity to be topical with, well, Back to the Future Day. Yeah, that was kind of a mishap on our part, but then again, to be fair, Back to the Future Day had the mistake of falling in October, which is also Horror Movie Month, so that's really Robert Zemeckis' fault. Um, but aside from that, we have a chance to be topical now, because today is Christmas, today is also Third Impact Day, or rather, today as in the day when this episode will hopefully be dropping. We are taking a look, this time, at three works all of which are very closely related to each other. That is the television series Neon Genesis Evangelion, and the two feature films Death and Rebirth of Evangelion and End of Evangelion. So why are we doing a triple feature? Well, when I've in the past talked about anime on this show and reviewed anime films, I've talked about the different types of anime films that this medium tends to fall into in terms of feature film anime. There are works which are completely original works, created effectively entirely for the screen. This is things like, for example, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Sort of. Nausicaa had a manga out, but Miyazaki wanted to make a movie before he made the anime. There are films which are side stories of a existing property, which are spin-offs, like, for example, the Cowboy Bebop film. There are films which are adapting an existing work to the screen, such as the Akira movie, and other films. Um, and then there are what's called the compilation film. The compilation film is something which I'm not going to say is totally unique to Japan in terms of film, but you don't necessarily see as often in, the, for example, the United States. The idea behind the compilation film is we are going to, we being the studio, take a television series. And since we're not replaying, necessarily rerunning this this show on television, we are, and we don't have a home video market yet. Because this a lot of this stuff predated the home video market. The Evangelion's a weird duck in this case, because Evangelion came out in the '90s, so home video is a thing. We are going to take a television series, and we're going to compile it or a portion of the series into a feature film, using footage from the show, and occasionally new footage to reanimate sequences where either the original animation of the show was lacking or where for purposes of a cinematic presentation it's more it's important to glitz these things up to glitz these scenes up and make them more spectacular and impressive now this isn't just a thing that happens in japanese animation if you are familiar with the television series mystery science theater 3000 you may be familiar with the films invasion of the neptune men and prince of space which were featured on the show. These were compilations of episodes of several Japanese television series, and they were basically chopped up into bits to create a cohesive narrative based off a particular arc of the show or several episodes of the show and make it something where instead of having to sit through 12 episodes or even 24 episodes, that you could get through this story arc in about 90 minutes or two hours. Now, for Evangelion and the two films we're talking about, these films are films which are kind of different in terms of how they do this. Death and Rebirth is less of an adip- less of a direct compilation of the series and more focusing on compiling together the important narrative elements of two plot arcs from that pl- plot arcs is the wrong term, but of the character arcs of the show, focusing in particular on the characters of Asuka and Shinji Akari and then also providing the information about general setting stuff and that sort of thing, but primarily focusing on the characters and their motivations and how they've changed over the course of the show, while also including some information about the setting and world-building for those who are not necessarily coming in cold, but need a refresher, with the second half being the beginning of the film End of Evangelion. So before I get into the plot of Evangelion itself, because you have to talk about Evangelion, in order to talk about these two movies, because it's so intertwined, I need to talk a little a little bit about how this show came about. Evangelion was created by an anime studio called Gainax. I, we've kind of 
been jumping the gun here on Gynax in terms of its story, because another of their films, their first film, in fact, Royal Space Force Wings of Honiyamis, was, well, one of the other films in the tournament. And we haven't talked about that yet. So I'm going to go brief about Wings of Honiyamis and save the meat of that for later. But long story short, Royal Space Force is a film that Gynax got made basically because they made animated sequences for the opening ceremonies of two conventions that the founders of the company ran in Osaka. These conventions were called Daikon. It was a pun based off Daikon radishes, which are grown in the Osaka area. And also on the fact there was a big convention. Dai is Japanese for big. And these animated openings very heavily caught the attention and inspired is the wrong word, but motivated some executives from Bandai, a major Japanese company who has its fingers in lots of anime pies, among other things, and f- action figures, all sorts of stuff, to go, he- go to Gainax and say, hey, you guys have vision, you have style, what would you do if you were given, a- if you made a feature film? And they basically backed up the money truck, and Gainax made one of the most, ex- at that time, most expensive anime feature films ever, Royal Space Force. They went on to do some other stuff. They did a OVA series called Gunbuster, which is one of the first works I reviewed for the site. And they did one of the, honestly, the most infamous, but a very mixed bag show that is beloved, but also has its issues in terms of production quality in this show called Nadia, The Secret of Blue Water. Nadia and Gunbuster worth mentioning because they're both the sort of brainchild of one of the founders of Gainax, a man named Hideaki Ano. Ano went, was, to make a long story short, he is a very motivated artistic person, a very passionate artistic person, as many otaku, Japanese anime fans, are. And he cared a great deal about his projects, and when things don't work out right, he doesn't just, he takes it kind of hard. And things did not go right with Nadia. Nadia is a show which was, which Gainax was hired to make by Fuji TV, either Fuji TV or NHK, which is the Japanese equivalent of PBS or the BBC if you're British. And it was a work for hire. Gainax did not own the property, but they were motivated to do this because the original concept of the show was created by Hayao Miyazaki, who is, well, one of the most, I'll say the biggest names in Japanese animation, but probably the biggest names of animation in the 20th century today. Further, I would say that Hideaki Anno probably considers Hayao Miyazaki to be something of a mentor to him. The first sequence in animation in a professional project that Hayao Miyazaki ever directed was from, well, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind and the sequence with the Great God Warrior, which I discussed in the podcast on that episode on that film. And so I suspect to a certain degree that film was a very personal, well, film television series, a very personal project for, I don't know, and things did not go well. The show went incredibly over budget, partially because certain Greek Gynax, because they are an animation studio made up of fans of animation, they are tend to be very perfection, perf- perfectionist in the projects and how they the final product turns out. Also, because it was a work for hire, if they went over budget, that was money out of their pockets. They would have no way to make money on the back end from the project through merchandising rights or that sort of thing. So there's that issue as well. And Gainax did several side projects during this to try and kind of keep the lights on and food on the table, uh, including a direct-to-video anime series called Otaku no Video, or Video of the Otaku. And there's still this didn't really keep the lights on. The main thing at the point where even Gellion started production that was kind of keeping them afloat, was a computer game series they'd made called Princess Maker, which is sort of known as the first of a series of, of raising simulators, ones created the genre, which is basically a, a series of games where you are playing a parent who is raising a child. Princess Maker, obviously, you're raising a, a, a daughter, a princess. And the decisions you make over the course of the child's life determines how they will grow up and what future destiny they have. And so... Gainax's situation where they needed a new project, and they needed and wanted something where they owned it, and 
they bounce around a couple ideas, including a planned sequel to Royal Space Force called Uru in Blue, or Alloy Uru, I believe is the Japanese title. And a lot of these fell apart, and ultimately what happened was this project, you know, just Evangelion. And at this point, now we'll get into what it is. And it'll be a little tricky to kind of get, all, get into this in depth. To, to quote the Princess Bride is too much to explain, so I will summarize. Evangelion is, in a nutshell, if I was to do the SAT comparison thing, Evangelion is to the super robot genre and tokusatsu in all its forms. From your, from your amazing disease to your Johnny Sakos and flying robots to even his, even Ultraman to, it is to that as Watchmen is to superheroes. It is a deconstruction in the sense that it's taking a genre of fiction, taking it apart to see how it ticks and looking at the deeper meanings and deeper sides of the, of that world that it, that exists in this setting and asks the questions of what would cause the world to come to this state? Many super robot series have the robots being piloted by the son of the creator. What would create a world where a father would tell their child to go into harm's way and potentially die in order to save humanity, to save the world? Giant monsters are attacking Earth. Why are they coming, coming here? Why are they coming to Earth? Why some other planet? And what is their purpose? Really was their purpose aside from just conquest, because there are better ways to do it than just giant monsters. And that sort of thing. And the show focuses on three, sort of four main characters. The lead is Shinji Akari. He is the son of the designer of the sort of super robots in the show, the Evangelions. And he, like pretty much every other major character in this world, is kind of mentally damaged. I don't mean like in terms of like disabled, but in terms of tra- uh, they've suffered a trauma in their life that makes them, the, it means they don't function as well. And they have a trauma they have to overcome or in some cases try to avoid in order to get through life. And this comes up a lot in the show. The other main characters are Asuka Sarayu Langley, who is another pilot. She is a mixed Japanese-German ancestry. There is Rei Ayanami, who is the third pilot, and she, her background is very distinct and enigmatic, and to explain exactly what she is is something of a spoiler, so I'm going to hold off on that. I'm going to, I am going to get into it. I'll hold off on that. And their maternal figure, their parental figure, is not Gendo Ikari, the cre- creator of the Evangelion units himself, but rather... Basically, the commander of the base security with the group that's taking on these robots, uh, Nerve, and sort of the field commander who ends up becoming their surrogate parental figure, Misato Katsuragi. And for the first chunk of the show, as each of the pilots is introduced, it's, it seems to be your monster of the week show. A, one of these giant monsters, which are called Angel, shows up. The pilots have to get in their Evas and work together to overcome it, usually with Shinji getting in the last blow. And then the show shifts a lot into getting into the psyches of these characters. It does that a bunch early on, getting into Shinji's head, but it also built focuses a lot on putting together and breaking apart personal relationships. And so, though this is the part where I have to get into spoilers, and some works I'd be less spoilerific than others, but... Because one of these two films is called End of Evangelion, and it is it's the alternate ending to the show, there is no way to discuss this without getting into spoilers. So, I have to talk a bit about the setting of the world. Prior to the start of the series, an event happened several years prior called Second Impact. In the setting, the first impact is described as the impact that created the moon, in terms of a foreign body crashing into Earth, ejecting material which formed into the moon in orbit. There's no reason given why... The impact that that caused the dinosaurs' extinction isn't second impact, and the one in that kicks out the events of the story isn't third impact. But hey, I'll cut them some slack for that. And there are narrative reasons for this why they're picking these incidents because they're related to a alien body, in terms of literally and figuratively, a body from outer space that is not from Earth, and 
this body also being a body in terms of a humanoid form. This form is codenamed, described, of course, the show as being Lilith. If you're going, hey, wait a minute, that sounds familiar, yes, this is Lilith from the Bible. The show gets into some very blatant biblical symbolism, and even more than that, Kabbalic symbolism, and I don't know how well it actually handles things in terms of the Kabbalah. I'm not too familiar with Kabbalistic mysticism. If someone who is more familiar with this topic and has seen the show would like to post it in the comments, I would certainly appreciate it. To get into the super spoilers, in the show, the premise of it is there's a group of basically very wealthy, very powerful, very old men called Sele, using the German word for soul. They do not want to die. They would rather this didn't happen. And while going through the Dead Sea Scrolls, they came across information related to a, basically, for lack of a better term, ritual. Not all this is spelled out in the show. Some of this is spelled out in supplementary materials. And from this, you have to kind of pick up the pieces and draw conclusions. You have to add the bits together. It's a show that, that really benefits from repeat viewing and interpretation of the events of the show. And th these group of old men discovers this, this sort of ritual that they can do to become like God. Or rather to cause humanity to become like God, to become one unified consciousness through a process called instrumentality. There are several speculative fiction writers who have used the concept of instrumentality in their work, particularly during the new wave of science fiction. But yeah, the idea is, is causing humanity to go into, human, into a unified consciousness, and they decide to go out this ritual to do this. And they do a test run at a base in Antarctica, and this event is what is called, what becomes known to the public as Second Impact, because the events that happen here end up becoming the kind of thing you can't cover up. The Antarctic ice cap is basically completely melted, global sea levels rise catastrophically, and the world sort of ends up trapped in the eternal summer. Um, one of the recurring auditory motifs throughout the show, which takes place over several months in the winter, particularly if you look at the calendars, is that there's the ever-present sound of cicadas, which is a, it's a summer insect. And one of the things that kind of, if you're paying attention to the trappings of the background and the auditory cues, that's so you'll let you know that things are off about this world and kind of builds this kind of ever-present sense of unease throughout the show. One of the people present at this expedition is Dr. Katsuragi, Masato's father, and at the time this event happens, well, Masato's parents are estranged, and at the time, Masato's dad has visitation rights, or as visitation period, so she's at the Antarctic at the Antarctic when this happens, and she ends up being the only survivor of the events that happen. Now, what is what actually happens in Second Impact is not explicitly described in the show, but Anno leaves a lot of visual cues with particular stuff that happens in End of Evangelion to give you an idea of what's going on. We see the events of Second Impact, depending on which version of the show you're watching, either in the sort of extended edition episodes of the show, if you have the Platinum Collection release, or in a portion of Death and Rebirth of Evangelion. What happens in instrumentality, and we'll just kind of describe this here, because it comes up again during the third impact sequence of End, is a person's soul, for lack of a better term, is stripped from their body, and they are reduced, their physical body is reduced to LCL fluid, which comes up several times in the show. It's, what's you, it's what the pilots of the Evangelion units are immersed in, and I've come to the conclusion, or it's, we get the information in the show that makes it come across that LCL fluid is sort of like amniotic fluid. Characters who are in EVA units in the sort of control pods and immersed in LCL fluid tend to recognize or have sort of a sense of familiarity about it, that, they're, that they recognize the smell and feeling of it, of this fluid before. Which kind of leads me to think it's, it, yeah, it's supposed to be, supposed to be like amniotic fluid, but it, it's part of the Freudian stuff. Cause there's also a lot of Freudian imagery in this show. A lot of Freudian imagery. Anyway, anything not of the body, glasses, coats, whatever, is left behind. And one of the things we see is we're in this Arctic base. There's a snowstorm happening, a big windstorm, and there's a coat flapping on a fence that's cut on, which, at the first glance, it just means something's wrong. But with things where in repeat viewing, you go, oh, oh, this is actually an instrumentality-style event. And there's a few other lines of incidental background dialogue where 
at first glance, it's just technobabble, but when you we go through and watch End of Evangelion and see that sequence and hear descriptions of what's going on, there's repeated technobabble phrasing. It's not just random technobabble like what occasionally pops up on Star Trek. This is actually something that means something in the course of the show. Several years later, Gendo Akari and his wife Yui are developing the Evangelion units. They have been sort of recruited by Sele as part of this process. They were involved before, but not very directly involved and not born a party to the inner circles of the process. And at this point, Gendo and Yui have a son, Shinji, and while doing experiment with the Evangelion units and sort of what's called a contact experiment where mentally sinking the, the pilot of the unit with the unit itself to control it, Yui attains what is described as Technobabble as full sync, and is completely, supposedly lost entirely inside the unit. Now, Gendo, in response to this, decides, okay, I will take a look at this prophecy stuff, that this ritual stuff that the sailor is using, and I'm going to see if I can't find a way to take control of it so I can get my wife back. Meanwhile, Shinji, who was present for this, for this experiment, has been horrifically traumatized, and never really gets better for the rest of the of human history as it exists in the course of this show. Put it that way. So, there's that. That's where the show starts. And we end up in a situation where we have all these various, to a various degree, broken people getting stuck together. And this actually leads to the more philosophical themes of the show. Without going through an episode-by-episode episode synopsis, because we will be here all day if we do if I do that. And the theme I, theme I think of the show, if I was to put it in brief is poor communication kills and with sort of footnote or corollary of good communication saves openness and communication and being upfront with the people you care about saves whenever anything bad happens in this show it's because somebody is keeping a secret from someone else yui doesn't keep gendo in the loop on her plan to become one with the Evangelion unit, because she believes that the Evangelion unit will survive the heat death of the universe, or at the very least, the death of the sun. And so any future alien civilizations who come along will see the Eva units as sort of like the statue from the poem Ozymandias, that a, a, a sign that mankind was here, even when all else has been lost, for better or worse. And she doesn't tell her husband about this. She doesn't tell Sally about this. And so, as far as Gendo's concerned, his wife was just lost in a tragic accident, and he will move heaven and earth and will indeed burn the world to get his wife back. Now, if Sally was upfront about their plans, admittedly, people would have taken steps to stop them much sooner. But on the other hand, a whole lot of heartbreak could have been stopped. And then there's the interpersonal relationships between the characters. Misato cares for Shinji sort of as a surrogate child. Even though she's never gotten married, never had kids, she has an often and on-again boyfriend who she's not in the healthiest relationship with, and she also has her own issues with being basically an alcoholic, even by Japanese standards where it's socially accepted, not just accepted, but kind of required to go drinking heavily with your coworkers after work. She wants to be close to Shinji, but the only way she needs knows to present that is that, that sense of caring is in a non-healthy fashion. Shinji doesn't really know how to be close to anyone. He's been bounced back and forth between relatives who don't necessarily want him. And in fact, when he comes to Tokyo 3, the city where the majority of the action takes place, he's been living not with his relatives or his aunt or his uncle, but with his teacher, because the aunt and uncle won't take him. So there's that element as well. Asuka has problems with her mother, Part of her mother's consciousness was pulled into a another Eva unit, Eva Unit 2, in an attempt to recreate the uh, contact experiment that took away Yui, but it didn't do it safely, didn't turn out safely. And so Asuka was stuck with a mother who doesn't actively care about her, as far as she knows, and only thinks of Asuka as a doll. Point that... When Asuka's mother's mind snaps, Asuka, her mother kills herself and also hangs the doll, which which is 
justifiably, incredibly traumatic for Asuka. And then there's Rey. Rey is, if I was to use a technical term, a Nephilim. She is a hybrid of human DNA and angel DNA, in particular the human being from Yui. And she is meant to be, for lack of a better term, the maiden of the apocalypse. She is meant to be how Gendo is going to take control of the apocalypse and get his wife back. And Gendo treats Rey as a daughter. Indeed, Rey is given the name that Yui and Gendo would have given their child had it been a girl instead of a boy. But there is a certain degree sense that Rey is thought of almost as a tool by all, by all the adults. And the few people who actually care about her are Shinji, to a certain degree Asuka, and Misato. Which is interesting because Misato is something of, a, of an adult child. A, 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 a woman child in this case. She acts in a very childish fashion most of the time. She is almost a comic relief character in terms of her smart aleckness and that sort of thing, although it's kind of clear that it's just she's putting up a humorous front to cover up her own sort of personal damage. Asuka is hostile to Rey, but Asuka's hostility is to a certain degree based more on Rey's passivity over her just general dislike of Rey in general. She feels that Rey acts like a passive doll as opposed to standing up to people and, and asserting herself. And... That frustrates her and also reminds Asuka of her mother and the doll, the doll Asuka that her mother had. And Shinji's attracted to Rei, not just because she's female, but, and, and he's a teenager with hormones, but also because, getting into the Freud thing, there's probably an edible thing, Oedipal thing going on there. But Shinji doesn't understand it because he doesn't really know, one, what his mom looks like, and two who Ray really is and where she came from. Those additional characters on top of this. Um, there's the other scientist that is involved in the project and their motivations and that sort of thing. But this is kind of the core nexus of the plot. And when we get to the death and rebirth movie, when there's two parts, there's the death portion and the rebirth second half. The death portion is basically sort of a rehash of these characters' plot arcs, who they are, where they came from, all the information this gave you, and how they interrelate to each other. It's done through the, perf the performance of the canon in D. And it's kind of sh each character's role in this and their personality is demonstrated somewhat by what instrument they play. For example, Asuka, who is assertive and flashy and wants to be the center of attention, she plays the violin, which has the really big melodies and solo portions of the piece, if you're familiar with the canon in D. Shinji plays the cello, which is, which basically plays a sort of, what's called a rhythm riff, but a very slow melody that kind of keeps, helps keep the tempo. It's in the background, it's in the back burner, because Shinji is a character who doesn't want to be the center of attention. He is afraid of being the center of attention, he's afraid of disappointing people. But he does somewhat want to be noticed. And on the one hand, he has the biggest instrument on the stage. But on the other hand, it's an instrument that's big that he's kind of using to hide behind. To hide behind others and to hide behind his instrument. And it reflects his own personal inner fears. Ray is second violin, I believe. Which has its own little elements that kind of harmonizes with others. But is a little different. And the third character who comes up in here is a character called Karu. He has a very, very brief appearance in the show, only one episode, but he's a major character in that episode, and it, his appearance really shakes things up. At this point in the show, through various factors, Asuka's self-confidence has been shaken tremendously, and she's effectively rendered comatose by the by this episode, where she's completely out of action due to losing several fights with angels and various other things. And she attempted to kill herself. And Misato, due to the death of Asuka's, for lack of a term, handler, who Asuka had a very sort of overt and kind of creepy crush on to an almost sexual degree, um, has died because his, what he was out to do was investigate Sele and figure out what their real aims were. And 
after his death, he left all the information that he had collected to Misato, so she could pick off where he left off. And because of this, to protect her charges, she pushed them to to the sides and kept them distant, but didn't tell them why, which again leads to this problem of dam of, sort of aggravating the emotional damage to already emotionally damaged people. And then Karu comes in, and Karu is another Nephilim, for lack of a better term. And Karu basically jumps in and becomes the best friend that Shinji could ever hope for at this point. He fills all of his emotional needs, comes incredibly emotionally close, and then betrays Shinji and everyone in uh, Sele by revealing, oh, I'm actually an angel, one of the angels, and I'm going to attempt to trigger Third Impact, forcing Shinji to kill him with the bare hands of the Eva unit. I'm going to talk a little about the Eva units here. Um, they are 30-story murder machines, for lack of a better term. They are humanoid. They are not overtly robotic, because they are not robotic. They are organic. They move in a very organic fashion. They are kind of modeled after some sort of sort of Bunraku puppets, to a certain degree, and also kind of inspired by the monsters, the, the rubber monsters from Tokusatsu and that sort of thing. It's very much has a design where, with prosthetic makeup, it could almost be played by a normal person, but not quite, because there's little things that are off. Like, the arms are a little bit too long, the mouth is a little bit too big, the teeth are a little bit off, that sort of thing. It's enough to just kind of creep you way the heck out when you look at them, to make them look just as monstrous and kind of terrifying as the monster that the Evas are fighting. It is much more of a case of to fight monsters we make, we've made monsters than when they use that line in Pacific Rim. And they are controlled or powered by a power cable connected to the back. And if the power cable is connected, they have a three minute timer before they stop functioning. This is a blatant reference to Ultraman where whenever Ultraman appears, he has three minutes in which to take down the enemy, if he does not transform to normal size after those three minutes, Ultraman will die. So there's that. Hideaki is a big fan of Ultraman. I mean, like, in, in art school, one of the student films he made was a student Ultraman fan film. If you're familiar with the sort of J-drama series Blue Blazes, one of the things that's featured in there is Anno's fan film, a recreation of it, made on Super 8 camera. Anyway, moving on. And like with the super robot shows, these monsters, the angel units have a core that can be crushed. Um, when Shinji loses control at some point earlier, at a point earlier in the series, he ends up eating an angel in the suit. Rather, the Evangelion unit ends up eating an angel and it takes in the N2 core from that angel. So Shinji's Eva unit does not need to be plugged in to function. And the eating thing, part of the other thing with the angels is that the, every sensation felt by the Eva unit is felt by the pilot. If an Eva unit's arm is broken, the pilot feels like their arm is broken. If a Eva loses control and eats an angel, as what happens to Shinji's unit, as I mentioned before, Shinji feels all of it, he tastes it, he feels every sensation. And this relates to the goal of Sailor's goal of the project, which is to bring about this instrumentality thing and this whole ritual. In particular, this relates to one of the Freudian things brought up as well, another one, which is a term called Destrudo. And I'm super paraphrasing here, but Destrudo, for lack of a better term, I would describe as saying meaning a desire for death or the void. And this comes up several times. Um, when we flash back to the experiment that causes Yui to be subsumed into Eva Unit 1, there is no mention of Destrudo levels. They apparently have equipment that can measure the amount of Destrudo sensation or desire for Destrudo in the mind of a pilot. In a later episode... Shinji's Destrudo level is very high. This comes up with Asuka as well. Now, the EV units can kind of bypass this three-minute limit if they basically go into the Berserker state, but it's 
Shinji's the only character who can really go into that berserker state because his mom's psyche is in its entirety is inside the unit. They will come to this later when we come to the end of Evangelion. And so the the goal is to for Celia is to perform this ritual, and they need to break the pilot's mind in order to do this. And so this idea of the one to one physical sensation carrying over from the pilot from the unit to the pilot is something where if you're creating a giant robot to be built to fight a war, you don't want the pilot to know or feel that their arm is broken when their robot's arm is blown off. If you're designing a robot to break the psyche of the pilot, it is a that is not a bug. That's feature. And that is exactly what the EVA units are. They are they are murder machines. They're designed to kill angels and destroy the minds of their pilots. They're I guess murder machines is the wrong term. They're trauma machines. They are walking trauma machines. And this leads to the second half of Death and Rebirth, the, the rebirth portion in End of Evangelion, because due to production difficulties, End of Evangelion got pushed back. It's only made Death and Rebirth. What they did is they took the portion of end that they'd finished, put that as the second half of, Re- of Death and Rebirth, so that the audience got a teaser where the film was done up to a certain point and it's a good stopping point, a good cliffhanger to leave you just holding on for the next bit, at which point you'd get that climax and the conclusion when you saw the feature film. Which then needs to kind of explaining why End of Evangelion needs to exist in the first place. Because the end of the show is somewhat controversial. I would describe the show's conclusion as being going from a super ro- a gritty, dark deconstruction of the super robot an- anime and live action genres, but still an action show. Going from that into basically wrapping up with two episodes of John Paul Sartre's No Exit. Specifically, the episodes basically get into the heads of Shinji and Asuka, and asks four questions, sort of. Because we're, we're going into a somewhat omniscient place. I almost compare this, I, mean, I mentioned No Exit, but also what could fit here is the trial from Pink Floyd's The Wall. Because the idea behind this section here is Asuka and Shinji are being asked, how do you view yourself? How do you view others? How do you feel that others view you? We then get a piece of information of how do others actually view you? And then finally, resulting in the question of who are you? Who are you really? What, what, what are, what are you as a person? What is your, what do you, not just what, what do you feel your place in the world is, but with all this information now, what is your place in the world and kind of getting them to understand their place in the world. It's, it's interesting narrative point to do is for the last two episodes of a action show, getting very talky, very introspective and very thinky. And particularly with a character sort of directly and overtly on screen, tackling the questions of who am I? What's my place in the world? And that sort of thing. When this character is of the age where this is the question you're asking yourself, Shinji is in his sort of early to mid-teens. Everyone's pretty much all the Eva pilots in their early to mid-teens. And this is what you start asking yourself when you start in getting into to degree middle school and especially high school is, who am I really? Where do I want to do with the rest of my life? What am I? Grasping with these questions of identity and the climax of the show not being a interpersonal conflict between a hero and a villain, but a intrapersonal conflict of what am I? How do I want to live my life? What is the world I want to be in? And it's a gutsy thing to do. And from the reactions, which are featured in the film, End of Evangelion, it didn't necessarily hit. So in between the conclusion of Neon Genesis Evangelion and End of Evangelion, there was a lot of discussion about this. This ending may have been, prior to the conclusion of The Sopranos, the most hit controversial ending of a television series in the history of television series. At least dramatic ones, anyway. Because Evangelion had a very, very successful run. Had a lot of ratings, uh, good ratings, and 
I would compare Evangelion as a show in terms of its cultural permeation in Japan to the X-Files in the United States, or for the matter, Canada, or the West in general. There's a lot of things that Evangelion used as visual shorthand ended up getting recreated a lot of works as visual shorthand for the same thing. Not just works of animation, but live-action cinema as well. So it's sort of like... Even if you have someone who, like, most people, a lot of people know about the X-Files. I'd say everyone knows about the X-Files. They, if you ask them, what's the name of Fox Mulder's sister, they probably don't know. They don't know her her name is Samantha. They can't name the three members of the Lone Gunman. They may recognize the three members of the Lone Gunman, but they can't name them and can't name, attach the correct names to the faces. But they know the X. They know the X Files. They recognize the theme. They sort of recognize the symbolism of the dark space with the lone figure with the high-powered flashlight, almost as sort of symbolism for men investigating into the creepy unknown, not just the unknown. And cigarette smoking man as a character basically became, for a time, some degree, kind of still is the shorthand for the shadowy, mysterious conspiracy is the man in the corner looking on silently and possibly smoking a cigarette when he shouldn't be. That sort of thing. So, in the same sort of way, Gendo Wakari's glasses, his shiny glasses, where he pushes back on, on his face and they reflect everything, just leaving the, these bright voids where you can't see his eyes becoming a shorthand for someone who's sneaky and plotting something as as a sinister conspiratorial plan, perhaps even with them um, peeking their fingers in front of their face to hide their mouth. Though that was a bit of shortcut for saving money in animation, but it also served well as as a stylistic standpoint. And so enough people were watching this and paying attention to the show that when the ending was less about well, less about narrative catharsis and the catharsis of overcoming the conspiracy and the antagonistic forces set before Shinji and Asuka and Misato and more about a personal internal catharsis, they felt kind of let down. And lots of angry hate mail was sent to Gynax. And some of that angry hate mail was used briefly in End of Evangelion. Ultimately, because there was a desire for, quote-unquote, a real ending, as opposed to what we got at the end of the show, the film End of Evangelion was made. And prior to that, as I mentioned, Death and Rebirth was made, to sort of tied people over while End was finished. And End is a much more action-focused work. And it's a much more violent, kind of brutal work. It's almost, I would say, to a certain degree, a, hey, you wanted a big action piece? Well, here you go. It's not necessarily the thing you wanted, though. We get, for example, as part of basically the ritual to trigger Third Impact, we have Sele forces, uh, or the Japanese self-defense forces, as puppets of Sele storming the nerve compound and wiping out the guards, who are actually not really combat combat troops. They have very little experience, and compared to the more veteran-hardened, combat-trained JSDF troops, they get steamrolled brutally and horribly, and the JSDF troops just massac- go through massacring the outpost. Um, Misato dies getting Shinji to Eva Unit 1. Asuka gets a big action scene in Unit 2 to take on the troops and ultimately a group of mass production Evas controlled by dummy plugs containing clones of Kaoru, but she too is taken down and brutally killed basically and all of this serves essentially one purpose which is to finish breaking Shinji's mind he is already in a bad mental spot at the beginning of the film Misato has effectively left him alone because she is on the hunt to solve this mystery that Kaji started investigating Asuka is comatose Ray, in an episode prior to this killed and replaced by a clone, and then 
Shinji was revealed that all the rays were clones to begin with, and then watched all the clones in the tanks, except for the currently decanted ray, being killed. He, his mind has been thoroughly put through the ringer, and he can barely function. So, he is on the brink of, of mental shutdown at the beginning of the film, and by the time he gets actually into the EVA and is deployed, things have gotten so bad that his mind just breaks and third impact kind of triggers. There's a bit more to this than that. We have, in particular, in the depths of what's called the geofront, which is where most of EVA, where um, nerves facilities are and the EVA units are kept. Gendo goes to actually pull the trigger on third impact with Ray. The idea being that if he pulls the trigger on it, he'll be in control, he'll get his wife back. And here we get the climax of Ray's personal plot arc over the course of the show, which is she does the thing that Asuka's been wanting her to do the entire show. She she shows her own, for lack of a better term, agency, and says, no, I am not going to let you control basically how Third Impact plays out, and puts control kind of in the hands of Shinji. Now, Shinji is not in a great mental spot, but he's in EVA Unit 1, which has the full consciousness of his mother in it, and as Ray is part of the process, this leads to kind of, of the film's three acts. Act 1 is everything goes to hell in Tokyo 3, everything goes to hell in the Geofront, basically everyone dies, and ends with what would normally be the point of no return, which is the um, in Act 2, but it is a point of no return here, with third impact happening, instrumentality happening, everyone getting yanked, everyone's consciousness being yanked from their bodies into the sort of great link against their will. And it's a, it's a very beautifully yet hauntingly done sequence with a piece of music being played in German title, which I don't know that, which I'm not going to try to pronounce. Um, and it, it plays up really well the fact that this is not really a consensual parting of one's mind from one's body. Some characters sort of go with it where Ray or the, a Ray entity, entity taking the form of Ray, will then transforms itself into a more pleasing, welcoming form to that person who will sort of get past their mental defenses and pull them out of their body. Others are not so down with that and are basically yanked, their, their mind is yanked screaming. And there's a shot in the film of the surface of the planet Earth with all these little cross-shaped explosions, which in the show happens when an angel is destroyed. And here is shown to represent bunches of people whose, whose souls are being yanked from their bodies. And this, and aside from the piece of music, the other auditory undercurrent of this entire scene is screaming very impressively done and then from here we go into shinji's mind right and this point depending on how some people put it first for a recommended viewing order this is the part where some people say hey pause the movie go watch the last two episodes of evangelion and then come and then finish watching the sequence inside shinji's head which will wrap up the end of the movie Actually, arguably, this bit is the third act as well. It is probably close to the third act, but anyway. Because what we have here is Shinji in his mind, sort of coming to the, getting therapy of a sort with his mother and his sort of sister kind of clone of his mother. I'm not sure how to describe this. Where he first sort of imagines a world without him. And realizes that there is a place for him in this world and that yes he has suffered in this world and he and he is hurt but that is a part of life and that what heightens joy is uh, suffering sort of sort of heightens joy and joy mitigates suffering and shared joy is heightened and shared pain is lessened is the is kind of what what the message of this bit is it kind of relates to another recurring theme throughout the show, which is explicitly spelled out in text, which is the idea of the hedgehog's dilemma. It's a philosophical concept which 
what I've heard mentioned by biology students who've discussed the hedgehog's dilemma have stated that the hedgehog's dilemma is something come up by some created by someone who had never actually seen a hedgehog in real life before, much less hedgehogs mating. And the idea is hedgehogs are spiny animals. They have to be careful when being intimate because if they are get too close, they will hurt each other. And thus is the same way with all living things, particularly humans. And this leads to kind of the other point of the film, which is that yes, when we try to get close to each other, we hurt each other. But if we succeed, if two people who are trying to get close to each other are able to get close to each other, the pain in each other's lives is mitigated. They, again, as I mentioned before, shared joy is heightened, shared pain is lessened. And I feel that that is really Hideaki Anno's message, particularly when he's trying to spell it out here in End of Evangelion, particularly related to him. One of the bits that he that's used there in the film is through the uh, sequences inside sort of the instrumentality is Anno likes to do brief subliminal images of a thing to draw an association or of text to draw a connection between those two things. And he uses that here with some of the text from hate mess, hate letters that was received by Gynax after filming the conclusion of the show. And so maybe the side bit here of, hey, get a life, not in the mean-spirited William Shatner on Saturday Night Live sense, but in the, if you don't get something, that's okay. Don't just, if you, if you get a life, if you go out and you hang out with your fellow otaku in the real world and you talk about stuff and you explore things and experience things, you will have new and additional context to bring to the works that you love and enjoy. And you will have people to sit and talk about these works too and draw new conclusions and interpretations in your own conclusions and interpretations, not just in the vacuum of other works of fiction that you've partaken in, but of the wider world as well. And I think that's partially what my interpretation of what Hideaki Anno's going for. Some of this stuff is informed by what came up in his Anno's next anime series that he worked on, which was uh, the non-science fiction show His and Her Circumstances or Karikano. Anno did like the first three quarters of that show before the creator of the manga got upset the show was too funny and had him taken off, at which point Anno hasn't really done much animation six since then, which is a bummer, aside from the Evangelion Rebuild films, which we'll be discussing later. So, after all this, and Shinji drawing the conclusions, Shinji is returned to the real world, which is not an untraumatic process, because Asuka is returned as well, which fits with the fact that at the end of the last two episodes of Evangelion, it's Shinji and Asuka going through the trial. Um, however, they both react kind of negatively to each other, with Shinji actually trying to choke Asuka for a bit until she speaks up, at which point he relaxes his grip, starts sobbing, and the film abruptly and immediately ends. This is partially because, to a certain degree, the show's, the film's credits ran kind of in the middle of the film, because the way the film is structured, and I'll get this last bit out of the way in terms of the film structure, we're not entirely going in chronological order for how things happen, is it's structured as two episodes of the show. And because of this, in End of Evangelion, at the end of the first episode, we run a closing credit sequence, because that's what you do. And we don't really have any new characters added in the third, in the uh, last episode, sort of. And so we're not necessarily running the another set of credits to add those actors who weren't credited beforehand, because I believe they are credited in the, the inter-credits. I believe End of Evangelion is probably one of the few films I've ever seen which has inter-credits in a motion picture, where we don't run our credits at the end, we don't run our credits at the beginning, our full credits. We run them at the end of the... We run them in the middle of the film and have no closing credits. So, yeah, there's that. As far as the film itself and how it fared... This is a divisive, controversial film. Unfortunately, I don't have much information on how the box office fared on this one. Because some of the things where Japanese box office figures are not as clearly available in the West. We have 
according to Wikipedia, so it takes the perfect grains of salt, a box office take of 1.45 billion yen. I can't find any information on the budget, though, as far as how much it actually cost to complete. The critical response was really controversial. Like, on the one hand, in Japan, Anime Magazine gave the film its Anime Grand Prix Prize for 1997. The Japanese Academy Prize for film selected, or also kind of described as the Japanese Academy Awards, gave the film the award for best, biggest public sensation of the year. And at the Animation Kobe Film Festival, the film received the award of a special audience choice. On the other hand, considering how controversial and divisive the ending of the show was, the film was even more divisive. We have New Type USA magazine calling the film a saga bamboozlement, um, describing Shinji as uh, criticizing its teen melodrama and bad parenting, which is a little odd, considering that these are sort of deliberate narrative choice, choices. It's like criticizing oh, I don't know, um, Matilda for bad parenting? It's not, the, yes, Matilda's parents are bad parents, but it, their, their bad parenting serves a narrative purpose in the, in the, the book. So there's that. The end of End of Evangelion, the film itself, and the end of the series, when those came out in the 90s, and even into the, even through much of the 2000s, were probably one of the most divisive topics in anime fandom. If you brought up Evangelion on an anime message board, it was a thread that was certain to become a flame war. It is, it was, the only thing was a surefire starter of a fire starter topic on message boards of any kind related to geek culture that really comes to mind from that period, uh, particularly through the 90s, would be if you went onto a general RPG message board and started a discussion about alignments in D&D. That said, I think the film holds up fairly well, but not in isolation. As part of a larger work of the larger sort of Evangelion saga, if you're willing to, if you're willing to, to kind of go with the mental concept of you buy the ticket, you take the ride. It is, it, and you're willing to kind of have an open mind and look at the themes that are being presented in the work. I think it holds up well. It is a film which definitely m does merit discussion and not just in a angry internet argument form, but in a sort of philosophical and analytic discussion, which some well-regarded anime works, and which are certainly good, don't necessarily hold up as well. You can't have necessarily the same philosophical discussions or literary analysis and literary readings behind, say, Ninja Scroll as you get behind End of Evangelion. And which leads to the unfortunate fact that End of Evangelion and Death and Rebirth Evangelion, and for that matter, Neon Genesis Evangelion, the television series, are all, as of this recording, out of print in the United States and in the English-speaking world in general. They were licensed by two different companies. The anime series was licensed by ADV, and the films were licensed by Manga Entertainment, which means, among other things, there is no continuity of dub between the two works. Shinji has a different voice actor in the films than he does in the television series, which is kind of a pain in the tuchus. If you're a dub person, you want that continuity there. Further, the transfer of Death and Rebirth and End of Evangelion on the manga video DVD releases is utterly terrible. I have seen excerpts from the Japanese release, and I can tell, say for certainty that, that this is a case where the transfer from film or whatever they got for the manga entertainment release was abysmal. In particular, any scene with a on-screen light source, whether this is the tanks in the quote-unquote Requarium, as it's so known, or the fight 
out in the sunlight with Asuka and taking on the mass production Evas is incredibly washed out. You, to the point where like anything that's white or light colored is very hard to see. It's a very weird color contrast issue. And this is something where like I popped into my DVD player and had this problem. I took this, took it to my computer. Same issue. I tried a DVD from the library and again, same issue. This is a problem with the manga entertainment release of these films. Now, as of this recording, a massive Blu-ray box set of all of the Eva feature films plus the television series has been released in Japan. But to my knowledge, there has no dub or sub English subtitled information on these releases. So there's that. Now, Japan shares a Blu-ray region with the United States. If you want to grab the big box set, go for it and kind of tough it out. Alternatively, there is the hope that somehow this may get a DVD release in the future or the Blu-ray re-release in the future. Uh, Studio Kara, who has currently been releasing the rebuild of Evangelion films, has a pretty good relationship going on with Funimation, who has handled the English language release of those films. It is entirely possible in the future that these films will come out in the United States once again, and the television series will once again be accessible. So, now the question of how did these fare on the tournaments? I say tournaments because Evangelion was in the running for the TV tournament and the films were in the running for the film tournament. Death and Rebirth and End did not place in the film tournament, and honestly, I'm not surprised by this. They do not stand alone well. They require, at the very least, some basic familiarity with the show of the kind that you would get if you were, well, if you'd been caught up in the zeitgeist in Japan, where even if you weren't actively watching it, you may have seen a few episodes, you may know somebody who'd seen it, so you could talk to them about the show. And you have gotten... The, an idea through water cooler conversation or conversation on the train or whatever about what's going on. The film or the television series, however, did place in the greatest science fiction television tournament in our, in our opening round going up against Invader Zim and it got beat by Invader Zim. I'm not too surprised by this. Um, Invader Zim has a very passionate fan base and as a more recent show, that fan base is a little more active than even Gellion's fan base. To a certain degree, a lot of the buzz has died down around Eva. And the fact that much of the show is not really available at an affordable price doesn't help things. I mean, you can get it. The sh- all the discs, if you are in the United States and now are getting Netflix discs, you can get it that way. I was able to pick up the Platinum Edition box set at a reasonable price for- on eBay. But it's... That reasonable price was like 60 bucks. So there's that. Is this a show I would recommend you watch? Or a, the, the whole experiment? I recommend going through the whole sort of Evangelion experience. Kind of yes. Is in particular end of Evangelion and the, the conclusion of the show make a very cohesive whole. The films do not stand alone well at all. And they're not a good gateway to get on. In particular, and of Evangelion, if you haven't seen the show, you will be utterly lost. But with the show, while you get the emotional catharsis, the character catharsis at the end of the show, there is a certain degree of, there is a lacking narrative catharsis, which the show can show sort of resolves. That said, also, there is a manga that started around the same time the show was running and wrapped up last year in the... In, as far as the English editions is concerned. That would also be a fairly good way to go. In fact, I actually, to a certain degree, like the last chapter of the manga as a conclusion compared to the to End of Evangelion. The only problem with the manga is some of the sort of more tri- trippy, surreal, and introspective elements of the show and the film, which give it it's really ner- strong narrative through point in terms of discussion of who are you and who do you believe you are and how people perceive you and how you connect with others is something that I think 
is what makes the show so powerful. And some of that is really missing from the manga, which is kind of a bummer. So, with that covered, thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe on iTunes. Rather, uh, like the show and give reviews and all that fun stuff on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever your podcast client of choice is. Also, please check out our other shows, including the Silver Screen Superheroes podcast, which I am currently sitting in on as host while Blaine is otherwise engaged. However, Blaine is still working on the X-Files Retrospective podcast, speaking of a show which I discussed this episode, which is definitely worth listening to, along with the um, unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels podcast and the Comic Book Physics podcast, all of which are absolutely worth your time and are excellent listening. And next month... If you're feeling like what viewing along, I will be talking about the David Bowie film, The Man Who Fell to Earth. And if you're wondering why we're switching from anime to David Bowie, this may or may not have something to do with the fact that David Bowie has a new al- has a new album out that month, and we're trying to be somewhat topical again. We'll see how that works out. Thank you very much for listening. I'll see you next time.